Okay, everybody, welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust as our podcast and joined today, as always, by Paul Gosling. Paul, how's things? It is good. Thank you, Gerard. Happy days. So, Paul, 17th episode of this series, um, but a bit of a, a landmark episode or interview that you have today. Do you want to tell people who you had a chat with? Yes, uh, it is Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, MP for Lagan Valley, uh, and he is the fifth of the party leaders. So we have now interviewed every one of the leaders of the largest Northern Ireland political parties. So that, I think, is itself a landmark. Yeah, I know we're delighted. We're delighted that Sir Jeffrey is able to join us, but also delighted that we're able to round off the set, if you like, of the executive parties, um, because they've been really important conversations. Everybody got the chance to answer the same things. And Jeffrey's uh, answers are interesting, Paul, and especially the one on legacy, um, where he says we should uh, address this before now. And clearly he's right. Um, it is frustrating that uh, legacy hasn't resolved things. I mean, he makes clear his frustration with the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, uh, in terms of it not resolving these matters. One might say, and I was tempted to, but didn't actually get around to doing it because there were other things that were more important at the moment, uh, and say, well, you had St Andrews afterwards, and that presumably also didn't resolve it. Uh, but, you know, the reality is that there isn't an appetite or there hasn't been an appetite either by the British government or perhaps the Irish government, and certainly by some of the political parties in Northern Ireland, to get to grips with legacy and what that means, not just in terms of the issues around criminal prosecutions, inquests, investigations, the ombudsman, but also about the the legacy of what it does to politics today, which is where really we've been focusing these interviews with the political leaders, that legacy is not just about the issues of the events of the Troubles, it's also in terms of what it does to the relationships between the political leaders today and why we have that sense of frustration and stasis within our political system. Yeah, and Jeffrey's really clear on that. He does talk about underlying trust issues uh, between political parties, particularly when it comes to remembering the past or individuals or actions from the past. Um, but they do talk about, or Jeffrey does talk about something that seems to have united the parties here around the need to have victim-centred approach to dealing with the past, whatever we do. So there's a bit of a reaction to the Secretary of State's proposals recently. Yes, though it's important to recognise that the political parties are focused on different groups of victims. I mean, mm. one thing that Dennis Bradley always says is that this, every victim is different, every victim's experience is different, and every victim's expectations and wants is different. And that perhaps is glossed over when we talk about a victim-centred approach to things. I, I'll be quite open with you, Gerard. I was disappointed that Jeffrey, while he talked about the difficulties of building trust and the difficulties of the legacy, didn't come forward with suggestions about how to deal with that so that the parties can work together to resolve the problems we've got. Yeah, because there was a recognition that perhaps everybody has a role to play there. You know, all the parties maybe have a, a bit of recognition they do around their past and, and what they've done in the past. But as you say, no no enlightenment, if you like. No, I mean, and, and that comes to the heart of, of where we are today. 
that we can perhaps get a consensus around what the problems are, but we don't have a consensus around how we reach the solutions, how we deal with things. Okay, well, well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Jeffrey. It starts looking at legacy and then moves on to other things. And I must tell people, Paul, there's a dog that appears at some point. Do you want to tell us all who the yes, dog I is? Yes, I do apologise. The, the, the meter guy came to read the electricity <laughs> meter while the interview was underway. I didn't answer the dog, but the dog, it didn't answer the door, but the dog tried to. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's why there's a disruption there, working from home and all that. Sorry about that. That's it, working on home and COVID. But anyway, here's the interview now. Good morning, and thank you very much indeed for doing this. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Now, I want to start by asking about legacy, not in the context particularly of the uh, Secretary of State's proposals on legacy, but rather what the implications are for the politics of Northern Ireland in terms of the, the legacy of distrust that is still spilling over from the Troubles. I mean, how do you think politicians today can, can deal with that? And how do you think political leaders can resolve that legacy of distrust? Well, it should have been dealt with a long time ago, Paul. Um, the fact is that in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement um, comprehensively failed to deal with um, the legacy issues. Um, it kind of left it as business to be transacted sometime further down the road. Um, and to use modern parlance, kick the can down the road at that time. And so here we are, um, you know, some... 23, um, four years later, uh, still trying to grapple with um, the issues related to legacy. Um, and uh, in the intervening period, uh, there has been a lot of debate, a lot of public discourse about what happened during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that has um, only added to the level of distrust. On the one hand, you've got some political leaders who were linked to organisations uh, involved in the troubles, um, who you know refuse even to talk about what they did, who um, deny um, the, their very involvement, um, and that I think undermines trust in the political system, um, and you know therefore I think that there are a, a collective failure to deal with issues related to the legacy um, has um, diminished, not enhanced trust over the last um, uh, two decades. And that is a difficulty because uh, if we're seeking to build a shared future, if we're seeking to dismantle peace walls, if we're seeking to make Northern Ireland a more integrated society, then building trust is an absolute essential component of that. If we're going to move the peace process to the next stage, which is hopefully about healing and reconciliation, then we can no longer, um, not that it was ever right, but we can no longer afford to kick the, this can down the road. We have to deal with this. Not least uh, we owe it to the victims, we owe it to those who um, you know, still um, are searching for uh, truth, for justice, for their loved ones. Um, uh, and we've lost a lot of those people in, in the last two decades who've never being to the point for whom the moment never came that, that we had a process to deal with the legacy of our troubled past. So the, the time for waiting has long since passed. We really need to get to grips with this, um, agree a process, move it forward within a, an agreed time frame and get 
to the other side of this debate, this discussion, this, um, if you like, this this um, focus on the past, so that we can then begin to redirect our focus towards the future. So, what would that process be, where you are rebuilding or building trust? Well, I think that it uh, has to be a process that is victim-focused, and that um, we need to ensure that victims individually and collectively um, have confidence in the process. Um, therefore, it 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 it, it has to be. Um, an inclusive process that examines um, or at least affords the opportunities to families to examine what happened to their loved one, why it happened. Um, some say that a, an information recovery process is sufficient to do that, but um, uh, I'm not convinced. And as I've said recently in Parliament, um, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that the road to reconcile, the path to reconciliation, is made easier when we sacrifice justice. And I think we need to have a process that enables uh, those families that wish to um, to have their cases re-examined to determine is there um, evidence, sufficient evidence there um, that might uh, uh, lead to a prosecution. Um, uh, to prosecution of those um, who murdered their loved ones. Um, and so I think um, a process has to be about investigation, information recovery. Um, it has to be about reporting to the families on what has been discovered um, and and providing them with, um, with the as much as we can to help them better understand what happened to their loved one and then it has to be about the next steps which are um, uh, you know what is the narrative around the troubles uh, how do we record what happened how do we um, use that in educational terms to help young people in particular understand the enormity of the impact of of that very traumatic period in our history um, and so that we don't repeat the mistakes so it, it's um, all of that I think lends itself towards building trust um, I don't think you build trust by by withholding things from people. I think people uh, uh, very often the first step in rebuilding a relationship is honesty. It sounds and, it sounds as if uh, what you're saying is I that think that's the it sounds as if what you're saying is that it's it's impossible to build trust today unless we deal openly with the events of the troubles but i'm sure that Sinn Féin would point to the fact that their most senior existing leadership was not involved in the troubles so is it is it necessary do you think to to go over those events in that way in order to build a working relationship um, it is necessary for the public to have confidence that the political process is capable of delivering a shared future. If we don't understand our shared history, if we're not prepared to acknowledge it um, and recognise it, then how do we begin to build a shared future? Um, and it is all very well for the Sinn Féin leadership to seek to distance itself from the actions of the IRA in the past. But when you stand in front of an IRA memorial and eulogise those who committed mass murders and, and heinous crimes, is that conducive towards building trust? 
So do you think that an apology is, is central to moving forward? I mean, David Cameron got a lot of goodwill for the apology over Bloody Sunday. It appears as if Boris Johnson's not willing to issue an apology over Bally Murphy on the same terms. Is it important, the role of apology, and who should apologise? I mean, all the political parties could be said to have a responsibility for past events. Well, I think it is the case that we all need to um, start out by recognising that, you know, collectively we contributed to what became um, a very difficult um, conflict um, in Northern Ireland, um, uh, or at least our forebears did. Um, so acknowledgement is important, recognition is important, truth is important, um, apology um well, I think that you know it, we have to take a holistic approach. Um, it's all very well one side demanding an apology from the other, but if it fails to recognise that it too has grounds for saying sorry, then um, we really don't begin the healing process that is essential. To move forward for the future, I mean, uh, I was speaking with Michelle O'Neill a few days ago, and she said, well. The way to build trust is the fact that we've actually got effective working together over the coronavirus pandemic. And that gives an example of how ministers can work together. Is that sufficient in itself, do you think? Well, it, of course, it's good that people can see um, ministers in our executive working together. And it is good that during um, a pandemic, when we had many challenges, that people were able to set aside political differences in the main um, to, to try and arrive at uh, a consensus on how we dealt with and responded to that pandemic. Um, that didn't always hold, of course. Um, we had the now infamous Bobby Story funeral, and sadly, um, those who ought to have been setting an example, um, choosing instead to, to blatantly breach the regulations that they had suggested others should adhere to. And there is no doubt if you look at what happened on that occasion, it seriously damaged trust and public confidence in what the executive was doing. But in the main, I think it is good that people have been able to work together um, to contribute towards a, uh, a coherent uh, response by the government of Northern Ireland to the challenges of the pandemic. And I think most people want to see more of that going forward. They want to see less of the bickering, less of, of the harking back to the past, and more than where, where is the future? How do we invest in the future? What do our young people expect from the future? Um, so you know, my focus as, as, as a leader um, is about um, how we deal with the past in a way that enables us to um, switch our focus much more toward the future. Now, clearly, we've got some really difficult political challenges ahead of us, not least the reform of some of the public services that are under-delivering. I mean, with the health service, we were already under-delivering before the pandemic. I mean, do you think that we can actually build a, a consensus in terms of how to reform the, the health service in Northern Ireland? Yes, I do, um, uh, because all communities are impacted when our health service um, is not working to uh, um, to its best potential. Um, uh, I think that during the pandemic, we have seen right across communities in Northern Ireland immense support and admiration for what our 
service was able to do in very difficult and challenging circumstances. But part of the legacy of um, th this difficult period is that, of course, waiting lists have grown longer. People are having to wait longer for access to vital treatment, in some cases, potentially life-saving treatment. Um, and so, um, you know, this is not a, a, an issue that is sectarian, um, that cuts um, uh, um, through political lines. It, it, it is something that we all share. We all surely have a desire uh, to have a health service that is efficient and effective, um, and reform has to be um, a part of our agenda. But it's not the only part. Investing in the health service is also critical, um, and investment without reform will not get us to where we need to be. So I think that health service reform and investment um, is a, a key area where we can build a consensus in Northern Ireland because it's what our people expect. It is rightly what they demand, that we set aside um, our differences, particularly differences uh, that relate to the past um, in the interests of getting an accommodation of a building a consensus on how we improve our public services for the good of all in Northern Ireland. But if the reforms are based on the proposals from Ben Goa, it will involve repurposing some buildings. It may involve closing some A&E facilities, for example. I mean, are you confident that your members will be comfortable with those type of changes? Well, reform always includes um, making difficult decisions. I want to ensure that all our communities have access to the best health care and best um, health services. Um, that may mean in some cases that we have to look at repurposing uh, the role of some local hospitals. I don't want to see um, local communities losing their local hospital. What I want to see is local communities having access to healthcare services that are best delivered locally and at the same time enhancing those regional services that are best delivered in our large acute hospitals. And for me, um, uh, it, it is a, a truism that our large acute hospitals can't do everything. And in fact, they don't do everything well. Um, and in my own constituency, I think we've got a good model where we have a local hospital, the Lagan Valley Hospital, that delivers um, uh, uh, in some cases surgical um, uh, services here. Uh, in, in a very modern uh, setting, um, day procedures that people don't need to go to a large acute hospital to have. They can have them in their local hospital um, with all the convenience that that brings. And here in Lisbon, what we're trying to do is to have a joined up approach. Our new health centre will be co-located on the same site as the Lagan Valley Hospital. So you've got your local hospital and, and your primary care centre um, co-located side by side. Uh, and that should uh, enhance um, our ability, uh, for example, on diagnostics, your GP uh, meets the patient, can send them across for a scan um, uh, uh, to the hospital that sits next door. So um, I think that uh, having um, that more joined up um, approach at local level, utilising um, our local hospitals to deliver day procedures and other healthcare services, including diagnostics, that e to ease the pressure on our uh, large acute hospitals and enable them to do what they do best, which is the specialist type uh, treatment and surgery. Would you be comfortable with reform that also involved more all-island services in the way that the children's heart surgery and the Northwest Cancer Facility has been opened? 
Well, of course, we can look at where um, cooperation on healthcare makes sense for people. Um, and and uh, 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 at the same time, I think it is important that our primary focus is on delivering the best level of healthcare we can in Northern Ireland. I want people to have access to healthcare in their local communities and as close to them as possible um, and as close to their families. So uh, my priority is to uh, reform and improve our health service in Northern Ireland. There are differences, of course. The the NHS is a very different concept from the health service in the Republic of Ireland. We need to recognise that. But yes, where it makes sense to have cooperation, where it makes sense to have some shared services, of course, that's to the benefit of uh, people who can access those services. But primarily, my focus is on reforming our health service and investing in that health service here in Northern Ireland. And what about reform of the schooling system? I mean, we arguably waste a lot of money by having so many different types of schools. I mean, what would you like to see in terms of the structure of the schooling system going forward? Well, um, uh, of course, uh, there are many who want to see a a more integrated um, uh, um, education system. but you know we are where we are in that sense. We have different um, sectors within education. I want to see um, at least as a, a strong starting point um, uh, more shared education um, in local communities um, because I think it's important uh, that our children have the best opportunities. Um, and what is more important than um, the structure of our education is the quality of the education we actually deliver to our children and young people. Um, uh, and, and therefore, I think when you look at um, our education system in Northern Ireland and you look at the variety of uh, offering that there is in local communities, there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution here. The idea that uh, you, know, you can scrap the current systems and create a uniform system across Northern Ireland, I don't think is the most sensible approach. I favour area-based planning, um, which means that you you look at each area in its own context, in its own right, and you design the solution for that area that best works, um, taking account of demographics, um, taking account of uh, where the population is, and so on. So I favour an area-based planning approach to um, uh, addressing the the need for reform in our education system. Where it isn't broken, we don't need to fix it. Where it is, we do. And the DUP has historically been very supportive of the grammar school sector. I mean, but do you accept the view of academics that the current system discriminates against poorer working class kids who don't go to grammar school and often have very poor outcomes? Well, I believe in investing in those schools uh, where uh, outcomes are poor, and that's what we've been doing in my constituency. We've been working alongside those schools whose performance was not good, and, and we've seen a transformation. Uh, I am I don't buy into the argument that the, the, the fix-all solution to education is to scrap grammar schools. That's not my experience of uh, representing a constituency like Lagan Valley. And what we have done instead uh, is to look at those schools that were underperforming, Uh, We've sought to establish why that is the case. We've set up homework clubs. We've set up preschool groups. um, We've um, uh, provided additional support for, uh, for example, single parent families uh, with the education of children, um, uh, providing them with additional tuition um, in homework clubs and so on. And that has transformed 
um, the the potential and the opportunity for those young people, um, uh, because we got we we were able to invest where it was most needed when they were at their youngest, when they were um, uh, at the best position uh, in, in the best, um, if you like, in their formative years. Uh, when we know from academic research that is when you can make a real difference in a child's educational experience is in those early years. So early years learning, preschool um, education, homework clubs, that kind of support. And, and that has, uh, in my experience, in my local community, been transformational. The result is um, a primary school, a local primary school that was due for closure uh, is, is now um, oversubscribed. A local secondary school uh, that was on the list for closure is now oversubscribed. Why? Not because we closed or 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 changed the status of the local grammar schools, but because we sought to invest in those communities where there was evidence um, uh, of educational underachievement. We sought to in people. We we brought alongside them and their families the resources they needed. The result, uh, kids doing better, getting better exam results, schools um, uh, uh, doing uh, better uh, and becoming more viable. That's the approach to tackling educational underachievement. And the idea that you you you, you know you need to bring this, the grammar schools down um, in order to bring um, uh, non-grammar schools up just doesn't stack up for me. Um, uh, I don't subscribe to that view. Um, I, that you, you need to address the parts of our education system that are not working, that are not delivering for our children and young people. You need to invest the resources in, in those parts of our education system. And that's what we're committed to doing. Now, in many countries around the world, including in the Republic, uh, citizens' assemblies have been used to deal with some of these difficult issues and possibly educational reform and health reform might be subjects that a citizens' assembly could consider, and of course it's in the New Decade New Approach that the parties do agree to at least one Citizens' Assembly a year. And what, what's your approach to Citizens' Assemblies? Do you see them as a, a good way of bringing consensus on difficult subjects? Uh, well, that's assuming they can achieve a consensus, of course, but um, uh, uh, look, I'm all for people um, sharing their ideas and, 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 and engaging in the political process. Uh, I think that um, over the years we've seen a reduction in the number of people who actually engage in politics. I think all political parties will report that, that you know, membership um, of political parties is not something that is strong. Um, and therefore, encouraging people to find ways of engaging in the political process is important. So I, I, I see the value in that. Um, uh, that is not, nevertheless, a substitute for politicians also engaging in those issues, discussing them, debating them, and, and making the hard decisions that need to be made. Um, we shouldn't subcontract that work. Um, we as politicians should give a lead, I think, and, and be prepared to take on and, and tackle the difficult and challenging issues that we face. Um, uh, you know, our politics is supposed to be built upon consensus. And I think, yes, there is a need not only for that consensus uh, to be evident uh, within the political system itself, but across communities. And therefore, I can see a role for bringing people together to discuss some of the issues that we face at the political level and then feeding those ideas into the political system. So it would be to inform politicians and in how may they make the decisions rather than to allow citizens' assemblies to take a decision on behalf of politicians? 
well, look, what is the point of electing uh, politicians to take decisions and then to um, take the decisions for them? I think that people expect us to lead. They expect us to get on with the job of taking those decisions. They have given us a mandate to do that. I think those decisions can be informed um, by, um, of course, by public comment, by public consultation, and by the public having a real genuine input uh, into the process of uh, de designing policies, developing policies, developing the programme for government. I'm, I'm all for that. But in the end, politicians have got to lead. They've got to make decisions. And, uh, and, and that's why I think it's important that we demonstrate our ability to provide the leadership that people um, uh, uh, expect of us and have given us a mandate to deliver. Jeffrey Donaldson, thank you very much indeed. That's much appreciated. And apologies for background noise from the dog. Okay, uh, the interview there. Um, thanks to Jeffrey for taking the time. Paul, after we talked about legacy, we talked about legacy just before we heard the interview. You go on, like you've asked all the other political leaders, they, talk, they asked Jeffrey about reform and public sector reform, and you start by looking at the health service. Um, no shock that everybody agrees that there needs to be reform in the health service. but And Jeffrey agrees with that too. Yeah, you say no shock, but it hasn't happened, does it? I oh, mean, well. <laughs> everyone says nice things about the need for reform, but they still haven't done it years after Angoa came out. Um, I, I, I was positive. I felt that was a positive input from uh, from Jeffrey uh, in actually recognising that we need to reform, and that does mean that we reconfigure the the, the structure of at least the buildings and how they're used. Um, and I think what he was saying is that he won't have any truck with members of his party seeking to keep open their local facilities or to keep using their local facilities, the local hospital, in the same way they've been used before. I, it seemed to me that he was giving a signal that he is genuinely committed to the implementation of the Bangor reform. So that would be, I think, a major step forward. He wasn't as positive in terms of all Ireland uh, opportunities, but he didn't shut the door on that. Yeah. And there, no, I thought that was interesting. And the, the language he seems to be echoing from other people who've already contributed about making sure that we have the best service and people can access the best service that they need. So that, that was positive. But on educational reform, it takes a slightly different view from those in the past that we might have heard. And also, it's been very much in the news this last week, uh, the last few days, where we've had an opinion poll showing overwhelming support, according to the opinion poll from Lucid, uh, for more integrated education, uh, for the principles of integrated education. Um, Jeffrey definitely did not come down in favour of that. He remains committed to the grammar school system, which is contrary to one of the principles of school education, uh, school integration, uh, but also uh, seemed to suggest basically that he wants to see more sharing of facilities, perhaps more shared classrooms between schools uh, rather than integration of schools across different religious backgrounds, different class backgrounds and uh, different academic streams. Yeah, he talked about an area-based approach, but given how divided our society is, that's likely to lead to a continuation of the segregated system that we have at the moment. And, and area planning's been around for, for years now, and it hasn't led us into the, the speed of change which many of us would want. Mm. And Citizens' Assembly um, come up again with Geoffrey. Um, 
he's a lot he's a lot stronger on this than some of the other participants where he really sees the, the primary role on decision making on difficult conversations resting with politicians yes that's right i mean i think his his approach is different from the other political party leaders that we've spoken to but on the other hand uh, in past podcast interviews we interviewed simon hoare the chair of the northern ireland affairs select committee at the beginning of the podcast series he was quite stridently i thought against citizens assembly rather dismissive of them in the past uh, when uh, he was an mla uh, we also interviewed Simon Hamilton, um, uh, former economy, health and finance minister, and he was pretty clearly against Citizens' Assembly. So I think we have to recognise that, if you like, the the right-wing approach is to say that the, the role of the elected politician is sovereign uh, and should not be challenged by a, a, a more people polling approach that might be regarded through Citizens' Assembly or, you know, a more consensus building approach it seems to be a divide between the right and the left of the political system yeah jeffrey wasn't ruling that out he was saying it could be a useful device so long as final decision making still rests with politicians absolutely and that, and that isn't a positive approach i mean mm. we just don't, i mean it, it's how these things work out in practice and and you can understand that given the dup's position on certain social issues why they wouldn't be perhaps happy with the result of the citizens' assemblies in the Republic, which have led to liberalisation on uh, abortion and also on same-sex marriage. Mm. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed the conversation there with Jeffrey or between Paul and Jeffrey. Um, Paul, thank you for taking the time to, to have the chat with him. And thanks to Jeffrey, obviously, for taking the time to meet with us. Um, thanks must go to our funders of this podcast, the Human Relations Council through their media grant scheme. And we have one more episode to go in this series. Paul, we're nearly there. Um, that's right. And we're, we're hoping for a, another special interview. So that's mm. going to get it over the line in the next few days. But listen to the space. Happy days. Happy days. So remember to subscribe and share and like and comment and all the stuff that you normally do. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers.